As we jump into the message today, I do want to take you back to the title of the series. It's simply called, What is God's Will for My Life? And as we've been in this series, what I've been trying to do is I've been trying to help us think about God's will for our lives. And so a lot of you know I wasn't here last weekend, and so Jeremy stepped up to the plate and he taught on my behalf. And um, I want you to know that this is not just a conversation that we're having as a church family. This is actually a conversation that I've had to have with a number of our staff members, okay? So when I was out last week, I had spent the whole week working on the next six months of things here at Mosaic, thinking about long-range strategic planning, what are we going to be teaching on from the end of June all the way through the end of the calendar year. And after I did that, I slipped out of town for a couple of days, came back, and I sat down with the team, specifically Jacob, Mike, and Jeremy. And when I sat them down, I said, guys, we're talking as a church about what is God's will for our lives. And guys, I want you to know that this right here is not God's will for your life, okay? I'm looking at Jacob in that 1699, and I'm thinking, what is he, the, the OG of the OS, the original gangster of Ocean Springs? Like, I look at Mike's picture, and I go, gangsters don't wear Patagonia. Like, I don't know what you're trying to pull off, okay? But that is not God's will for their life. If you were not here last weekend and you have no idea what I'm talking about, you should probably just pause. This is a rare occasion. Just say, God, I don't know what happened last weekend, but thank you that I was not here because there are some things you cannot unsee, okay? You will never forget what you saw last weekend. Now, as we jump into the message series today, thinking again about what is God's will for my life, I want to come back to something that I said in week one that we haven't really touched on since. What I said in week one is that when you understand God's general will for all of our lives, it will help you better understand his specific will for your life. And so what we're learning in this series is that when God talks to us about his will for our lives, it's not so much about what city do I live in and is this the job I'm supposed to take or is that the job that I'm supposed to take? God doesn't talk a whole lot about, you know, what car am I supposed to buy or what college am I supposed to attend? It's not really about that. But what God does do is God says, I'm going to communicate my general will for all of my people. And the better you understand God's general will for all of our lives, the better you'll be able to understand his specific will for your life. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, we read where Paul was writing to the church and he was saying, listen, I want you to know God's general will for all of our lives. He said, you should avoid sexual immorality. That's not just his will for me, that's his will for all of us. We saw that he has a will for our lives, that we would grow in our ability to love other people well. We have a perverted misunderstanding of what love really looks like. And so we took a long, hard look at what love really looks like in week two, and we understood that, man, God's will for our lives is that we would grow in our ability to love one another really, really well. Then last week, Jeremy talked about God's will for our lives, and he simply said it like this. It's God's will that we would mind our own business, that we would lead a quiet life, and that we would work hard with our hands. This is not just God's will for some of you. This is God's will for all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. And so after verse 12, what Paul does is he drifts into some other conversations at the end of chapter 4, goes into some other conversations at the beginning of chapter 5, 
But toward the end of chapter 5, Paul comes back to this issue of God's will for our lives all over again. It's almost like Paul is getting ready to finish up the letter and he's like, "Uh uh-oh, I forgot a few things. I need you to know a few more things that you need to be thinking about as you're trying to discern and understand what is God's will for my life. And so this is what he says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16, 17, and 18. He writes to the church and he says, Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, be really easy to look at that passage and go, man, this is going to be an easy message for you to preach. There's your three points, throw a poem or a rap like they did last week at the end of that bad boy, and we are out of here, right? But, but we're not going to do that because we struggle with these three things. We do not do these things very well. And so what I want to do is I want to take each one for each of the next three weeks, and I just want to break it down. So today, all I want to talk to you about is that two-word verse rejoice always now as you think about people in the world around you as you think about your family your friends your neighbors your co-workers even your own life i don't know what word pops into your mind if you were to describe people in the world today but joy is pretty far down the list for me i, I look at people and i would probably say okay a lot of people are stressed out That would be probably at the top of my list. Um, I would say that people are anxious and scared. I would say that people are frustrated and angry. I I would say that people are sad and depressed. But I would not say that people are rejoicing always. I think people are are expressing their unhappiness in all kinds of different ways. I don't see a lot of joy in the world, and I don't even see a lot of joy in the church. Okay, But what I do read in this passage is that it is God's will for your life and for my life to be a people who rejoice always. In fact, this idea of rejoicing is such a big deal that if you were to read the entire Bible and you were just to start counting the words rejoice, joy, happiness, blessed, uh, glad, all of those words are used about 2,700 times throughout the Bible. And so when God is writing to his people who are living in different parts of the world at different times in human history, even speaking different languages, over and over and over again, he is saying, man, I want you to be a person who is full of joy in your life. And so today, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, I want to talk to you about this thing called joy. And here's something I want you to learn. Joy is not something that you discover, but it is something that you have to learn how to develop. And a lot of people don't get this. And so a lot of people are kind of going through life and they're trying to discover joy in something or in someone or discover it somewhere. And so they're constantly running after all different kinds of things in the world, just like Solomon did in the book of Ecclesiastes. 
And they really are just chasing after the wind. Because you cannot discover joy in the world, but you can develop joy in your life. This is why the Apostle Paul said, God's will for your life is that you would rejoice always. Does that mean that everything in your life is going to go your way? Absolutely not. There are going to be days when everything is going your way, and there are going to be days when nothing is going your way. And yet God's will for your life, in spite of what's happening in your life or in the world around you, is that you would be able to rejoice always. When you look at it, you think about your life, and you think, well, some days I just kind of wake up on the right side of the bed, and some days it's like I wake up on the wrong side of the bed. That happens to every one of us, and Paul knows it. And yet Paul would say God's will for your life is that you would rejoice always. It's like so many people in the world today are waking up in a neutral mood, and if everything in life goes their way, they experience joy, which is really, really rare. That's why people aren't joyful people, because they're waking up in a neutral mood. If everything goes their way, which hardly ever happens, then they experience joy. But if something doesn't go their way, then they start to experience unhappiness, and they express that unhappiness in sadness, depression, anger, stress, anxiety, or in some other form. And Paul would just say to you, that is not God's will for your life. Now, how do you develop joy in your life so that you really can be the kind of person who rejoices always? I want you to know that there is a process for developing joy. And when you know the process and when you perfect the process, you can be a person who experiences real joy in your life regardless of what is going on in the world around you. Now, let me tell you something. It requires work. And I mean constant work to be the kind of person who can develop joy in your life. But you want to do it for yourself. And if you don't want to do it for yourself, at least do it for the rest of us, okay? Because we got to live with you. And here's what I know, that, that when you're around people who are miserable, it is a miserable experience. But when you are around people who are full of joy, it is a joy to be around them. And so as you think about this, I want you to be thinking about, look, even if I don't do it for me, I need to do this for my spouse. I need to do this for my kids. I need to understand how to develop joy for the sake of the people that I have to go to work with every day. I need to be able to develop joy for my neighbors so that everyone who's around me is not around me going, man, that's a follower of Christ that is absolutely miserable, and it's miserable to be around miserable people. So do it for yourself and do it for others. You've got to know and you have to perfect the process for developing joy. Now, whether you like him or not is not the point. But Nick Saban is one. See, I know you don't like him, okay? But Nick Saban is one of the greatest football coaches of all time. And the reason that you don't like him is because you know he's one of the greatest football coaches of all time. And you're really tired of him beating your team just like he always beats my team, okay? And yet, when you listen to Nick Saban, one of the things that you will always hear is you'll hear him talking about the process. He's, he's got a process 
for everything that they do. And if you talk to Nick Saban, he says, we're not really focused on the result that we want. We're focused on the process that will give us the result that we want. And so a lot of people are making the mistake of looking for joy, what they want, rather than thinking about the process that will give them the joy that they want. So if you go to Nick Saban and say, hey, tell me about your process, he'll say, I've got a process for recruiting the greatest players in this country. I have defined that process, and I have perfected that process. He's got a process for developing out-of-shape, overweight football players and getting them into peak physical condition in the preseason. He's defined that process, and he has perfected that process. He has a process for helping his team get prepared to face an opponent on Saturday afternoon. He knows how to break down the film. He knows how to communicate the other team's strategies to his players. He knows how to develop a game plan so that they can go and defeat their opponent. He has a process every week for how are we going to prepare for the big game on Saturday. He has a process for everything that he does. And because he has defined the process and he has perfected the process, they are always winning. And if you know how to define a process and perfect the process of developing joy in your life, then you can be a person who is always rejoicing. But, but you've got to know the process. And so what's that look like? Today I want to take you away from that two-word two verse, and I want to take you over to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And the reason I want to go there it's because the author of Hebrews is writing about some things, and then he calls our attention to Jesus, and he talks about Jesus who experienced joy at a time in his life when you would not think Jesus was experiencing joy. Some of the hardest moments of his life. This is what the author tells us, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, as we think about the process of developing joy. He writes and says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Then he says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Well, why am I trying to fix my eyes on Jesus? Because he is the pioneer. He's the one who knows the way. He's the one who knows the process, but he's not just the pioneer. He is the perfecter of our faith. So he knows the process and he has perfected the process. He goes on for the joy set before him he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know what really creates joy in our lives? It's knowing that our lives actually 
matter. People who know that their life really does matter, that they really do have a purpose in this world, that they do have a race that God has marked out in front of them, that he has a plan and a purpose for their lives, they experience joy. But, but people who have no purpose for their lives, people who aren't certain if their lives even really matter, they have no real, lasting, genuine joy in their lives. And so the passage focuses on Jesus because his life mattered more than anyone else's life mattered in the history of the world. So the passage opens up and it says that we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses in the heavenly realm, which I think is the author's way of saying that you want to live your life in such a way that you are literally leaving people sitting on the edge of their seat. And I want you to know this, they're not sitting on the edge of their seat like at a NASCAR race where everyone just wants to see a wreck, okay? That is not the image here, okay? The image is that people instead should be sitting on the edge of their seat looking at the way you live your life, looking at the way you lead your family, looking at the way that you're always growing spiritually or that you're growing in character, looking at the way that you do your work, looking at the way that you manage your finances, and they're sitting on the edge of your seat going, wow, they live with such success and they live with great intentionality as though their life really does matter and they make a big difference in the world. And that is how the passage opens up. It opens up with people looking at your life as though your life really matters. But then the passage ends, and it ends by saying that God does not want you, as you're living this life of purpose, to grow weary and lose heart. It is not God's will for your life to let life steal your joy. He doesn't want you to get worn down and beaten down. He doesn't want you living your life discouraged and depressed or stressed out or anxious. He doesn't want life to steal your joy. He doesn't want you to grow weary and lose heart. And so what he does is he sets in front of you an example in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when you read this passage about Jesus, there is one thing about Jesus that should absolutely stand out. And it's this. If Jesus could maintain his joy during the worst days of his life, then he could certainly maintain his joy during all of the other days of his life. And so the author of Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross he was able to endure a humiliating public crucifixion. He, he was able to deal with opposition from sinful people. And yet as he's dealing with all of that, he still found a way to keep his joy out in front of him. He still found a way to say, I'm not going to let what's happening to me or what's happening in the world around me to steal my joy from me. Now, how did he do it? He did it because he knew the process to develop joy in his life. And there's several things in this passage that are laid out for us that we're supposed to follow because this is the way Jesus lived his life. The, the author says that you have to 
throw off everything that hinders and get rid of the sin that so easily entangles. So I want you to think about those two words. I want you to think about the word hinders and I want you to think about the word entangles. When people are hindered from doing what they know they were created to do, when people are hindered from being able to run their race or live out their life's purpose, they are not full of joy, but they are full of frustration. When people are entangled in something and it's preventing them from living out their life's purpose, they are not full of joy, but they are full of frustration. If you don't believe me, go ask Tiger Woods. I mean, I mean, this dude is on the fast track to break every record ever set in the game of golf until he got entangled in some things and his wife took a one iron and put it in the window of the back of his car, right? And when all of that happened, you could see that he was hindered from doing something that he was great at doing and you could see that it was absolutely stealing his joy in the process. And the same is true for you and me. And so the author is saying that there are things that are hindering you in your life and there are things that are entangling you in your life. And the only thing you can do about that is you've got to get rid of it. You've got to throw it away. Now, I would say that as we think about these two categories, it's important for us to understand that the author is talking about the fact that there are some things that are sinful that entangle us, but there are other things that are not sinful, but they're still hindering us. So what are some things that are a part of our lives that are actually hindering us from running our race? They're hindering us from our life's purpose and from stealing our joy. And yet, we allow these things to be a part of our lives by choice almost every single day. Social media. Just one example. And so let's think about social media for just a few minutes. I absolutely believe that social media is the great time waster of our day. But I also believe that it is now far worse than that. So social media is not a, a sinful thing, but it is certainly a harmful thing in that it hinders people from being able to live out the greater purposes in their life. And so you look at social media and we have people who are looking for approval on social media platforms. So they're constantly posting and constantly checking to see whether or not their approval rating is on the incline or on the decline. You have people who are on social media and they are victims of cyberbullying, which certainly steals your joy. You have people who are on social media platforms and there's no joy in their lives because they're constantly looking at the highlight reels of everyone else's life. Not the real life, the highlight reels of everyone else's life. You have other people who are on social media and they're struggling with self-esteem issues because they're not getting enough likes. And we don't really even know the full effect that the digital age is now having on our lives. But what we do know is that Generation Z or those born after 1996, they will be the first generation that grew up with this device in their hand. Most of them were on a social media platform by the time that they were in middle school. Now, 
before all our middle school students start nudging their parents going, see, I told you you should let me have social media. What we also know about Generation Z, because of the time that they have spent on social media, is that they are more anxious, more fragile, and more depressed than any generation that has ever lived before them. In fact, in just the last 10 years, the number of 10 to 14-year-old girls in this country who are harming themselves by cutting and other forms of physical harm to their own bodies, it has tripled in just the last 10 years. We absolutely know that 10 to 14-year-old girls have seen an increase in their suicide rates by 150% in just the last 10 years. And almost every expert believes that there is a direct correlation between the suffering that they're experiencing and the social media that they are constantly living on. It is hindering people and it is simultaneously stealing away their joy. Now, again, I don't think that social media is sinful, but I do think that you could make an easy case that it is harmful. And so the author of Hebrews would just say, throw away the things that are stealing your joy. So now for young adults and for old adults alike, I know it took some of the older adults a little longer to figure out how social media works, but now that you're on it, you love it. In fact, you're on it all the time, maybe even more than young people. But the question you have to ask is, is it making my life better or is it making my life worse? Is it adding to my joy or is it hindering me and is it stealing away my joy? And it's not just social media. I mean, we have become consumed with this device. I mean, I I see students today who are stressed out because they can't keep up with all of their friends who are sending them Snapchats and they can't stand to leave their friends on open. If you don't know what that means, talk to someone under the age of 25, okay? They'll explain it to you. In my own life, I honestly struggle with stress to keep up with all of the text messages and all of the emails and all of the calendar appointments and all of the Facebook messages and everything that is constantly coming through. Hold on, I got a text message. I gotta get, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. But it's only funny because it's a little bit true, right? What are we doing? I have given literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people immediate access to me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and it's not healthy. They don't know if I just sat down for a meal with my family. They don't know if I've had the worst day of my life. They don't know if I just started my vacation. They don't know if I'm working on my life's purpose. They don't know if I'm working on strategic planning for the next 16, next six months that might affect hundreds or thousands of people on the Gulf Coast. They don't know, and I'm not even sure that they would care if they did know, but they access, and you were not made to be accessible 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it will hinder you and it will steal your joy. But the author of Hebrews would come back and say it's not just that there are morally neutral things that are stealing your joy and hindering you in your life's purpose. The author of Hebrews would say that there are even sinful things that are holding you back or hindering you and stealing away your joy 
in the process. In fact, the author says, get rid of every sin that entangles you. And so I, I look at this and I go, it's not that sin isn't fun. If it wasn't fun, people wouldn't do it. But Scripture teaches that it is a fleeting kind of pleasure. It's, it's very brief. It doesn't, it doesn't really produce genuine, long-lasting joy in your life. It gives you a fleeting pleasure, and then it entangles you in a really big mess, and it steals your joy in the process because sin doesn't just affect you spiritually. It affects you physically, and it even affects you emotionally. David wrote about this a couple of places. Psalm chapter 32, verses 2 and 3. Listen to what he said. He said, blessed is the one, or that word blessed is happy. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Well, why is it that they're happy and God's not counting their sin against them? Is it because they have no sin in their life? No, everybody's got sin in their life. And the reason that they are happy is because they have acknowledged their sin, they've confessed it to God, they've dealt with it, and they've asked Him for forgiveness. There is no deceit. They're not hiding anything. They're not lying about anything. They're not trying to keep something from God. They've been honest about it. But the text goes on, and it says, But when I kept silent... When I didn't talk about my sin, when I wasn't confessing it to God, when I wasn't dealing with it, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Does that sound like someone who's got joy in their life? Someone who's living in sin and hiding their sin? Absolutely not. So when David got entangled in his sin with Bathsheba, he lost his joy. So much so, you can go read his prayer to God after all of it came out and all of it became public. And what did he pray to God? He said, God, I'm just praying that you would restore to me the joy of my salvation. Why? Because his sin had stolen away his joy. And the author here of Hebrews would just say, man, if there are things in your life, morally neutral things or sinful things in your life, then you should get rid of those things because they will steal your joy. Now, not that all that long ago, um, I went out to work, and I leave really, really early in the morning. It's always dark when I leave. And when I left, I could still see that there was water standing in my yard. And I was like, that's not good because there's not water in anybody else's yard, and um, it has not rained. And so I, I looked around, and it was obvious. There was a pretty serious leak in our front yard. Had a friend of ours who's a plumber, he came out and they dug and dug and dug and the leak is like right under this huge tree in our front yard. And so he was like, it ain't good, it's in your water lines, it's probably going to get in your sewer, you need to have that thing taken down. Building inspector came out, said it ain't good, uh, it's going to get in your sewer line, you probably need to have that thing taken down. So we had the thing taken down, whole yard got destroyed in the front yard, had to put sod out. My wife is like, Brandon, you've got to water the sod or the sod is going to die. And so I'm like, I got it, I'm going to water the sod. Thankfully, God watered the sod for a while, and then I got a little neglectful, and the sod wasn't doing too well. And so uh, one day, I was like, I've got to go out, and I've got to water the sod. And so we have a sprinkler system. Flip the switch in the garage. Sprinklers come up. Everything's starting to get watered, except where the tree used to be. 
The people who had installed the sprinkler system well before we ever bought the house, they set it up, knew the tree probably didn't need a lot of water, didn't water the tree. And so I had to go, and I don't know if you even remember these bad boys. Um, You remember these sprinklers? So, So I had to go get one of these bad boys out of the garage, right? And I get it out, and I set it up, right? And I've got it set up perfectly where it's just going to fall right on that spot where a lot of the sod was, and it was going to be perfect. So I set it all up. I went in the house. Ten minutes later, our sprinkler system shuts down. All the heads go back in the ground like they're designed to do. But what I didn't realize is that when those things got shut down, all of a sudden this thing had a lot greater capacity than it did when they were running. And so I come out an hour later only to realize that I was watering the street rather than watering my yard. And so all of my neighbors, I live on the front of the neighborhood, they're all coming home from work, they're all coming in and out of the neighborhood, and there I am watering their car for them while my front yard looks like trash. And they're going, this guy is such an idiot. I'm on the naughty list in my neighborhood, right? But let me tell you something. That's happening in your life. You're like this sprinkler and you have far greater capacity than you even realize and what you don't understand is that there are these little sprinkler heads in your life that because you haven't dealt with them because you haven't gotten rid of them sinful things and morally neutral things they are hindering you and they are eating away at your capacity and you will never reach your full potential until you shut it down, until you throw it off and you get rid of it. And so there are some things that we need to get rid of and there are some things that we need to get after. What did the author say? Hebrews, he said, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. God has a plan for your life. He has a race that he has called you to run. He's not asking you to run my race. He's not asking me to run your race, but he wants all of us to run our race. He created you and he made you to make a difference in this world. And your life's purpose is not just to make a lot of money so that you can eat, drink, and be merry for all the days of your life. You were made to make a real difference and to enjoy a real purpose in your life. And as you use those gifts and those talents To make a difference in someone else's life, it brings you real joy. So years ago, there's a guy named Rick Warren who wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. It sold 30 million copies. Do you know why? Because people are looking for a real purpose in their life. So in the book, he he wrote this. He said, the only really happy people are those who have learned how to serve. You can take care of yourself all day, every day, and you'll experience what we might call fleeting joy, temporary pleasure, until you take care of yourself all over again. Or you can live a life that says, I understand that God created me with a purpose in mind. And you can live your life running your race and serving other people with the gifts and the talents that you have been given And as you live out your real purpose and you make a real difference, you will experience real joy. And this is why I just keep saying to you that you really can develop joy in your life and you'll never discover it in the world. You can get rid of some things and in the process of developing joy, you can get after other things. But it requires you 
to make choices. See, the choices that you make, they will either develop joy in you or they will destroy the joy that is in you. And so the author of Hebrews is just encouraging us to make choices where we're choosing to run away from the things that are stealing our joy and we need to be running after the things that bring us joy. A guy named Richard Foster wrote a book once called Celebration of Discipline. He he talks about how celebration and joy, it really is a discipline in our lives. And this is how he describes how we get that joy. He says the decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. This is why celebration or joy is a discipline. It's not something that falls on our head or falls in our lap. It is the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. And so what does he say? He says, Richard Foster says, you've got to set your mind on the higher things of life. Or the author of Hebrews would say, you better fix your eyes on Jesus who has modeled for you. He's paved the way for you. He has perfected the way so that you can see what it looks like to develop real joy in our lives. Stop fixing your eyes on all the petty things of this life or all the sinful things in this life and fix your eyes on Jesus and the purpose that he has given you in this life. And so that's what I want to do here at the end of our service. I'm going to ask Wes and Rebecca to come on out and they are going to lead us in a really old but really great and really short song. The song is called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And the words are pretty simple. It just says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth, the petty things of this earth, the sinful things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so I want to ask you to stand. I want us to sing it together. And then I'm going to come back out and I'm going to ask you three questions that I want you to think about before you leave today. Let's sing together.
questions and then I'm going to let you out of here. Question number one, throw it up on the side screen. Is there anything in your life that is hindering you and stealing your joy? Talking about morally neutral things. Let me go ahead and throw up question number two. Is there a sin that has entangled you and is stealing your joy? Let me tell you this. A friend of mine texted me and he said that you got to say no to some things so that you can say yes to an even better thing. And so you got to say no to these things. So, so whatever they are, the author of Hebrews, and I'm challenging you as your pastor, just to get rid of those things in your life so that you can say yes to an even better thing, a thing called joy. Last question, question number three, is there a purpose that is waiting for you that will bring you great joy? God created you with a purpose. If you don't know what that purpose is, we as a church family would love to help you discover it. We have assessments. We can have conversations, help you figure out your purpose so that you can chase after a great thing in life that will bring you great joy. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you've been looking for joy in the world, there is no joy that is greater than the joy that you can find in a relationship with Jesus Christ who loves you, who laid down his life so that you can be forgiven of your sins and live with him forever. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, man, put your faith in him as the forgiver of your sins, the leader of your life. Let us know so that we can help you grow in your new faith in him in the weeks, months, and years ahead. Thank you guys so much for being with us today. We love you. Rejoice always, and we'll see you next week.